From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Schuck. This is the fourth in the series Islam 101, Meet Your Muslim Neighbor. This will take a slightly different direction today since there's much confusion among non-Muslims about terrorist organizations that take the Muslim label. I want to dedicate a program to an expert on understanding terrorism. My guest is Dr. Paul Kalmonik. Dr. Kalmonik is a professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee. He specializes in classical social theory, contemporary social theory, political Islam, Al-Qaeda organization, Islamic State organization, and counterterrorism. He's written monographs for the U.S. Army War College. One is forthcoming, called the Al-Qaeda Organization and the Islamic State Organization, History, Doctrine, Modus Operandi, and the U.S. Strategy to Permanently Defeat Terrorism in the Name of Sunni Islam. Paul Kamonik is with me via Skype from Johnson City, Tennessee. Welcome to Religion for Life. Thank you very much, John. How did you as a sociologist become interested in terrorism, and in particular Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State? Uh, inadvertently, I would say, you know, I've, I teach the history of social thought, and my undergraduate degree was in political theory and uh, political philosophy. So I've, I've always been interested in questions of political obligation, uh, the nature of the state, the nature of law. I also have an activist background. I could say that I uh, have been impassioned, uh, interested in questions of, of justice and the distribution of, of opportunity. Uh, I can tell you that the question of actual political violence and terrorism is something that began for me uh, really with 9-11. I called 9-11 the worst first impression ever of Uh. a religious faith. Uh, And most Americans, including myself, had never really studied Islam. Uh, And then all of a sudden, there's this new giant idea connected to a horrible incident and uh, an entire industry... Uh, around interpreting it, and unfortunately, uh, a, a polarized debate. Um, for those who began their study with 9-11, you begin with lots of polemical texts, lots of apologetic texts, lots of really poisonous, polarizing rhetoric, and uh, and then um, a journey into Islam that is, is quite naive. Um, and, and that means going to original sources, for the very first time and cherry-picking very militant passages, which do exist, uh, and trying to claim that, yeah, it's here, therefore 9-11 is justified. You know, it's a very quick, if this, then that. I've been at it now for almost 15 years, and I remember when 9-11 occurred, um, where I was, and I remember I was teaching, and I remember students streaming in, I'm going, Dr. K., um, have you heard? And I said, heard what? And there was, uh, a, you know, a television screen and I was watching and I knew then that that was big, uh, really big. And I actually, uh, dismissed in a sense, my classes for the next two weeks and took two weeks to think and discuss the magnitude of the event. A lot of people were very freaked out, very concerned. And so the first question for me was what is the meaning of nine 11? Uh, and, um, I then um, led to a second question, a very big question, what is jihad? Uh, A five-letter word that no one had heard of. And then that kind of led back to the question, what is Islam? Uh, And then forward to the question, what is terrorism? 
Uh, and then finally, you know, when you, you finally make that journey and it's a long, difficult journey, fortunately, I get paid to read, write, teach and think. Uh, mm-hmm. And I spend all day doing this. Um, you know, you can then get to the question of counterterrorism and what is the best method for taking on a really fringe that claims to speak on behalf of a, of, of a 1.6 billion people. Uh, how do you do that? How do you do it in an intelligent way and a scholarly way and one that uh, does not deny that there is a militant dimension uh, to a faith, but at the same time uh, clearly disassociates that particular doctrine of jihad from, from mass casualty terrorism. So for me, it began with 9-11. Um, and uh, other than that, uh, you know, it's been a, a long slog and, uh, of course, with the rise of the Islamic State organization, um, that's another player. It has been all al-Qaeda for 12 or 13 years. Um, we knew something about the Islamic State organization in its earliest incarnation. It was called al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, Al-Zakrawi, uh, the uh, sheikh of slaughterers, uh, was the first to introduce us to beheadings and uh, glorified sadistic um, mass media spectacles, um, and that was in 05, 06. Um, and in, in that earlier incarnation, we still, that we did not disassociate this organization from Al-Qaeda. Uh, so it, we really have been here before. We know how to do this. When you say we know how to do this, you mean how do we permanently defeat terrorism in the name of Sunni Islam? And that brings us to your upcoming book, Al-Qaeda Organization and the Islamic State Organization, History, Doctrine, Modus Operandi, and the U.S. Strategy to Permanently Defeat Terrorism in the Name of Sunni Islam. How did you happen to write this monograph for the U.S. War College? The U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, is the senior military institution in the United States for training officers who will be in leadership positions. They have a Strategic Studies Institute, SSI. Uh, The Strategic Studies Institute has a program called the External Research Associates Program, or ERAP. And ERAP is designed uh, to recruit non-government, non-military civilian experts to research various topics that the war colleges really don't have the resources to do. So each year, uh, they... uh, select a certain number of monographs uh, to to fund uh, through a competitive contract program. It's actually run through the U.S. Department of Army. So I uh, am a contractor um, and I offer my expertise and they evaluate these proposals competitively. Um, mine was selected and so I have about a year to write what is called a monograph. Um, It's probably not best understood as a book. So it's more like um, a focused research brief written for decision makers on a topic of interest uh, to the U.S. Army. Um, It can also be of interest to the State Department, Department of Defense. Um, What happens is the War College will publish this now. They're digital only. It will be available as a free digital download. It is U.S. government property. And uh, when it comes out, uh, probably in the spring, uh, summer, it will be uh, available on the SSI website. You just, Komolnik SSI, you click, and there it is. 
If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Dr. Paul Kalmonik. He's a professor of sociology at East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and he's the author of Al-Qaeda Organization and the Islamic State Organization, History, Doctrine, Modus Operandi, and the U.S. Strategy to Permanently Defeat Terrorism in the Name of Sunni Islam. Talk more about your research and writing for the War College. Give us an overview of these monographs and the contribution you bring as a sociologist. The first monograph, Delegitimizing Al-Qaeda, a Jihad Realist Approach, uh, was published in 2012, conceived in 2010. At the time, the only uh, actor was Al-Qaeda, and what we'll call the Al-Qaeda organization. Um, Many people have been talking about it, writing about it. Obviously, uh, bin Laden and that terrorist organization had uh, been uh, working their, uh, their terrorist acts for some time. And I wanted to weigh in somehow. I wanted to get involved somehow uh, as a civilian academic. And I don't, I'm not in the military. I'm not in intelligence. I'm not an expert uh, on regional studies or Middle East studies, um, uh, languages per se. But I, I do have a profound interest in, in ideas and, and how people's thoughts relate to their actions and especially the radical mind the way the radical mind constructs a picture and acts on the basis of that picture. So I thought, if I can weigh in, it's going to be an examining the worldview and also trying to undermine uh, the terrorist uh, arguments uh, of that worldview. So basically, as a a social theorist, I examined uh, the mind of jihad and uh, as embodied in uh, bin Laden's uh, doctrine. What I discovered uh, is, after examining the doctrine of jihad, is that jihad does exist as a military imperative uh, within Orthodox Sunni Islam. It is an undeniable religious prescription. However, jihad is not the same thing as mass casualty terrorism. So in a way you could say jihad, yes, terrorism, no. The attempt to make terrorism jihad and to justify it on the grounds of a supposed war against Islam is what I have uh, basically written two monographs against. So the first monograph uh, deconstructs the legal argument against jihad as mass casualty terrorism. Uh, The second monograph was two years later uh, when instead of just looking at the legal argument, uh, that al-Qaeda used, I looked at the what people call the narrative, that is, the, the idea that we're involved in a war against Islam uh, and that uh, bin Laden's outfit is justified as a response to a crusader Zionist war against this faith. So uh, in bin Laden's view, or his attempted propaganda, al-Qaeda is merely the victim and the defender. Uh, they are responding to aggression and transgressions and exploitation and 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 the ripping off of the Muslim world of of their resources and their energy reserves. And it's presented the U.S. is presented as a kind of a an illicit occupation army uh, at war with the faith. And and so it was important to address not just the legal arguments but the claim that in indeed the United States was in fact. Uh, involved in uh, a war against Islam, and on the other hand, that bin Laden was a defender of Islam. And so the second monograph is called Countering Radicalization and Recruitment to Al-Qaeda 
fighting the war of deeds. The notion of a war of deeds rather than a war of ideas suggests that, and I argue, that what we do is more important than what we say or what we say about what we do. And what Al-Qaeda does is more important than what it says uh, about what it does or what it says. And so when you objectively evaluate the deeds of that terrorist organization and the United States, objectively, empirically, what you discover, of course, is that bin Laden has no credible case against the United States. And in fact, we have a very strong case against bin Laden on uh, two grounds. Uh, Number one, that he is not defending Islam if, in fact, the legal requisites of military jihad are being violated. Uh, So jurisprudentially, um, it has been Laden who is at war with the consensus in Sunni Islam. And secondly, on prudential grounds, uh, in terms of interests and upholding uh, Islamic, the Islamic desire to expand the faith community, uh, Al-Qaeda has uh, really for a generation destroyed in the minds of a populace uh, Islam as a faith, uh, besmirched it, and undermined the call, made it very difficult also for Muslims in the United States to not be considered suspect uh, and to live a life uh, that they that they deserve here. So both on legal and prudential grounds, bin Laden, the case is very strong against bin Laden. And on the other hand, the case against the United States is not. So both of those monographs are are freely available from the Strategic Studies Institute. Again, they're government property. Those were about Al-Qaeda. Just as I was finishing up the second monograph, June 2014 is when the Islamic State Organization uh, came in and actually uh, conquered, with relatively few people, the second largest city in Iraq, Mosul. It was a kind of a blitzkrieg, if you remember. Uh, this organization seemed to come out of nowhere, and the Iraqi army collapsed. And uh, then we were witness to some really horrific uh, and barbaric uh, activities So this organization, which was not mentioned at all in almost every commentary going back to probably 08-09, suddenly is resurrected. And uh, this other organization uh, is now a player, and it's a very, very significant player. So the third monograph uh, was based on me understanding that the Islamic State organization and al-Qaeda were now two distinct terrorist entities – And so I conceived a comparative project that would examine each to see what their sameness and difference was. And uh, I wanted to examine both their beliefs and their strategy, uh, their theory of how they're going to accomplish their objectives. And uh, and then finally, because this is what uh, the Strategic Studies Institute uh, ERAP program is about, is I wanted to come up with concrete suggestions for policymakers on what, what in the end does this mean? Like how, how, what does it mean for strategy? Are there really relevant differences that we need to understand? How should it influence professional military education, etc.? And you begin your book by stressing the importance of understanding what these groups believe about the world and what they believe differs from each other and the larger Muslim population around the world. So talk specifically uh, about al-Qaeda first and, and, and as well as ISIL. What's distinctive about their beliefs and their strategy for implementing those beliefs? Okay, that's a good question. Let me start very briefly about what is Islam, okay, really briefly. 
you know, Islam is an Abrahamic faith. Uh, it's a monotheistic faith. It's strictly monotheistic. Uh, at the level of creed, to be a Muslim means that you believe there is a singular God and that there was a final prophet that revealed uh, Allah's, uh, God's word. That's the creed. Allah is one and Muhammad is his messenger. Along with those, and that uh, is called the shahada, your witness to being a Muslim, are four additional, what are usually called foundations. Uh, that is prayer, uh, that is uh, obligatory, five prayers in a day. There's fasting in the month of Ramadan. There is the pilgrimage uh, to Mecca at least once in a lifetime. Uh, and there's also a, a, a tax of some portion of your wealth uh, on called uh, zakat or alms. So these five pillars of creed, prayer, fasting, pilgrimage, and uh, alms are for the vast majority of Muslims what it means to be a Muslim. Um, now, if we want to talk about how Islam is spread, uh, there are three methods generally within Islam. There's preaching. Uh, which is called dawah, and that is simply the call to this faith. Uh, there is uh, the uh, desire, the, the demand that Muslims uh, enjoin the good and prevent the bad within their presence. So the idea that conduct in your presence should be conducted in a righteous manner, uh, that, that Muslims are obligated to uh, exemplify righteous conduct and, and not to allow the bad to, to exist. And under ex very extreme and, and uh, regulated circumstances, uh, there can also be a jihad, uh, which involves fighting. So uh, preaching, uh, enjoining the good, and preventing the bad, and fighting are three ways to spread the faith. Now, jihadism is what I would describe as what is the same for Al-Qaeda and uh, the Islamic State organization. What is jihadism? Jihadism is a kind of mutation where the single method, a single means, fighting, uh, among three means, has been turned into practically a fetish or an end in itself. And it is seen as the exclusive and only means for elevating the word of Allah the doctrine of Islam and, and the legal requisites of Islam. And so jihadism, the uh, singular method, uh, fighting, uh, is elevated in Al-Qaeda uh, to its only uh, means of, of accomplishing this objective. Uh, both the Islamic State Organization and Al-Qaeda share that. So they, in that way, you can call them jihadist or jihadism. And I would think jihadism to me is, a, is an innovation. It's deviant. Yeah, well, uh, there's that. no such thing as jihadism. Yeah, so okay. how do they differ? Yeah. Al-Qaeda Before we get is, there, just for a second, yes, Paul, I just want sure. to get before, uh, because I, I want to talk a little bit about jihad, just a second, because I've, I've talked with my uh, fellow Muslim friends, and they and they say that, that uh, jihad uh, is really not so much about violence. It's first about an inward um, action of uh, personal character building, and then and then later it's about, you know, preaching or talking the word, and then only finally is in the smallest part, or the lesser jihad or something, is it a, is it a violence in regards to defense. So they are often very um, uh, upset, really, that the word jihad only means a violent act. Um, they're correct, but we, we have to steer a middle ground here. Um, the, the middle ground is th there are those who, on one hand, would say there is no 
offensive jihad, there is never a moment of uh, moving out into territory when you're not under attack and demanding uh, with a militant dimension that others either subordinate themselves or fight. We want to avoid that um, because that, that's actually a kind of an, an apologetic reading of Islam. At the same time, we want to avoid the other extreme that jihad is viewed as ex exclusively offensive jihad. The way I, I think a helpful way to approach this, I do this in my the class I've taught for a long time, is I distinguish uh, what I call J1, J2, J3, and J4, these variants of jihad. J1 is what your fellow Muslim, uh, your, your compatriot stated, and that is the jihad against one's baser instincts and lower self in a way. It's the jihad against what we know are our worst instincts, and it's the desire to sharpen and improve and enhance um, our righteous intention and, and our goodness as individual human beings. No question that that's fundamental, and it, it's found throughout the Quran, righteous belief and righteous conduct. And there's a tremendous amount of, of virtues of character, of, of living rightly, of forgiveness, of patience, of, of all of the virtues of character that are, are quite remarkable are found throughout the Quran. Um, so that would be J1. J2, you can think of as, in a way, works, you know, uh, jihad of works, practical works of sometimes they call it, you know, a crusade against poverty or crusade against illiteracy, a crusade against uh, homelessness, uh, these kinds of things. So the, just a practical a public manifestation of righteous intent. You can think of that. Uh, J3 is what your uh, friend referred to as what we would call purely defensive warfare. And that is you, you are in a Muslim nation and an external power uh, not upholding uh, Islam uh, comes in militarily subjecting you to their uh, force, for example, the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, and as a Muslim, you are in a position of pure defense, uh, attempting to prevent uh, the elimination of your right to worship Allah, to pray, uh, to uh, offer alms, etc. But there is also, there is also, and this is difficult to admit, but I found that I could not deny this, and this is why I call my first monograph Jihad Realist, there is also, unquestionably, in my opinion, a doctrine of offensive jihad that requires when you have power, when the costs and benefits work to your advantage, that the Muslim sovereign expand the realm of the worship of Allah, what's called Dar al-Islam, the abode of Islam, against the unbelieving world. And depending upon the person you're fighting, if they are people of the book, Christians and Jews, people with uh, uh, who have a divine covenant, they're offered different options. For example, um, in exchange for uh, Muslim imperium, you're allowed to practice your own faith and uh, remain Christian and Jew. If you are a polytheist, in the case of uh, Muhammad's original milieu, you do not have that option. You, you do not have the option of, of, of revering multiple deities. Uh, you have the option of either Islam or not. So I, I do not – it cannot be denied that there is an offensive dimension to jihad, I believe. And I do think starting with that premise fully empowers anyone to not only uh, honestly debate those who claim this is a religious prescription, which it is, but also to become aware of the law regulating offensive jihad. 
okay. there law there's a jurisprudential tradition that requires that offensive jihad is conducted in a manner that is quite different than what we call mass casualty terrorism. So I'll I'll just uh, I can leave it at that. Paul Kamonik from East Tennessee State University, author of the upcoming monograph, The Al-Qaeda Organization and the Islamic State Organization, History, Doctrine, Modus Operandi, and the U.S. Strategy to Permanently Defeat Terrorism in the Name of Islam. You've given us the four J's, the four types of jihad in Orthodox Sunni Islam, including defensive jihad and offensive jihad. So back to Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Why is what they are doing not defensive or offensive jihad? Um, yeah, they are deviant criminal terrorist organizations within the framework of Sunni Islam, uh-huh. um, it, for sure. And what, what is interesting about um, Al-Qaeda, uh, for example, is they, they hardly even claim that they're involved in offensive jihad. They claim it is defensive jihad. Uh, because they view uh, existing Muslim governments and existing Muslim lands as occupied. And so for them, this is a defense. Uh, and uh, their attacks are not regarded as expanding, but simply recovering uh, occupied territories. That That's uh, al-Qaeda's, not in their more secretive, they, they do not deny offensive jihad, but their rationale for attacking the United States very often and for being involved in terrorist acts uh, in the world is that they're removing alien occupiers. And so the rules on defensive jihad are far more relaxed. We'll call it relaxed, supremely relaxed rules of engagement apply when uh, basically you're a besieged country by an alien power. And that's the way that bin Laden uh, represents that. But even in terms of offensive jihad, supposing for a moment it is offensive jihad, uh, indeed, uh, Al-Qaeda, the Al-Qaeda organization and Islamic State organization are in violation of, of many, many legal requisites. Uh, and there are different kinds of violations because they're two very different organizations. Uh, Al-Qaeda's violations have to do with attacking uh, non-Muslim peoples. Uh, Western targets, highly symbolic mass casualty terrorist attacks, that is what they call the far enemy or original infidels. There's no doctrine in Islam that permits the attacking of original infidels using mass casualty terrorist attacks by a sub-state actor. Nothing. Hmm. The Islamic State organization has its own violations as well. These involve things that are absolutely prohibited, mass murder of all opponents of, uh, of this organization, uh, Sunnis uh, especially, anyone who resists uh, their claim to monopolize uh, the, the rule and the path to salvation. Uh, the blanket uh, murder of Shia, including lay Shia, uh, regular Shia, is not something that Sunni Islam uh, accepts generally, even though the Shia are seen as wayward it is unacceptable to deem them as apostate and out, outside the, the faith. The murder of journalists, independent voices, torture, mutilation of corpses, treachery, sadistic cruelty and brutality, um, rape, uh, the execution of humanitarian workers and emissaries, uh, the beheading. Those are so far out 
of uh, Islamic consciousness and ethics that many Muslims believe these are not, these cannot be actually Islamic acts. There's all kinds of conspiratorial thinking about external powers trying to undermine Islam and destroy Islam by promoting such pernicious uh, uh, activities. And it is only their uh, tyrannical, in essence, arrogance that they represent and they determine who lives and who dies that, that keeps these groups alive. That's all the time we have for this week, so we're going to come back next week and conclude our discussion with Dr. Paul Kamonik from East Tennessee State University, author of The Al-Qaeda Organization and the Islamic State Organization, History, Doctrine, Modus Operandi, and the U.S. Strategy to Permanently Defeat Terrorism in the Name of Islam. We'll talk about uh, more about ISIS and Al-Qaeda and strategies to defeat them. Thank you, Dr. Kamonik, for being with me today, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you very much, John. You've been listening to Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. That's the website to go to to get podcasts, find out more about upcoming programs. Religion for Life is produced at KBOO Portland, Oregon. Be well. Be well.